Touch them all, Joe! On the Backstage Project podcast, we cover every aspect of the sports and entertainment world. I'm excited about our chat today with Jim Nish, because today we're going to cover an area of the business that we don't generally talk about. So to start, in simple terms, Jim, can you tell us how you help sports properties? It's a million dollar question mark, one I think my wife asks me consistently still after 25 years in the business. Um, you know, it's interesting. Licensing is the one piece of connective tissue that really connects the dots between every facet of the organization from, you know, what coaches wear to players wear and ultimately what fans wear. So, you know, really what we, we are is a, a conduit to each of the team's brands to the consumer interface. Um, and licensing in its, is its truest form is, you know, that commercial transaction that takes place with the fans when they buy something with a team's logo on it. So, you know, we manage all facets of that process from, you know, the, the registration of the intellectual property to the procurement of licensee partners to how it gets delivered to retail, how it's sold, and then the collection of money, which is all important in the business of sport at the end of the day. So that, that's a lot. And you're right. I mean, we're, I don't think we have enough time to go through every aspect of it. And I think as fans, I mean, as fans, we generally, we, do, we don't really understand the difference. Like we can walk into a local sports store and they could have all kinds of jerseys that maybe come with a player's name on the back. Maybe they're blank. You know, when we go to a, when we go to a an arena or a stadium of a team, they generally have some kind of store that's in there. But outside of that, you know, we don't, as fans, we don't really know what, who we're really dealing with, except that it's the team or it's the retailer. But in the last number of years, there's one company in particular, and I just want to talk about them for a minute. And they, they've changed the business somewhat. And I, since you're the expert, I'm going to let you tell us how, but it's a company called Fanatics. And you know, without this being a whole podcast about Fanatics, maybe you can educate the audience about kind of where they fit into the ecosystem today. Well, they are the behemoth in the ecosystem. They've absolutely turned the ecosystem upside down and backwards. And, you know, Michael Rubin, um, you know, the recent valuation of Fanatics is $6.2 billion. So there's a lot going on. But, you know, what Fanatics has done is is basically gone in and created vertically integrated, um, you know, supply chain mechanisms with all the leagues. They're buying up league rights, college rights, uh, you know, you name it. And, you know, Fanatics is making a difference. They're, they're not only controlling the product now that's made from headwear to apparel, but they're also controlling e-com in terms of all of the major pro sports and also now brick and mortar. So most of the team stores that you're seeing, whether it's on a college campus or in a pro arena, is being run by Fanatics. And so they kind of took North America by storm, I would say, five years ago and are now expanding that platform globally. So they are the single, I call them the single largest entity, but also the single larger disruptor in terms of, of how the license business has transformed in the last little while. Yeah, huge disruptor from you know, the various things that I've read. And you know, we, we're all extraordinarily familiar with Amazon now. If we weren't nine months ago, we everyone is today. Is is Fanatics like, like an Amazon of sorts where... I know that Fanatics has some kind of uh, their own label, but do they also use you know a distributed uh, kind of uh, 
marketplace where they don't they're not responsible for the entire uh, vertical integration from from manufacturing to jersey to merchandising distribution and e-com yeah like you know very much like an amazon or google in fact you know um you know they are you know where they don't have vertically integrated supply chains they're just procuring or buying them so they you know as an example they just you know, have taken over all of Nike's licensed business. So whereas Nike used to manufacture and produce them by themselves, now Fanatics integrated themselves into that process and pays Nike a royalty for their business. So, you know, they just bought a massive college headwear company called Top of the World. So, you know, they are creating their own sort of centralized marketplace and using outside vendors, very similar to what Amazon is doing and really controlling. I mean, their key focus for for fanatics is really the e-com space and you know the the hundreds of thousands or millions of of you know consumers that they have in their database and that's you know core for you know cross promoting and cross you know functional advertising and sales promotions that they do but you know they very much um are in that same realm of of amazon and google right now for sure and you know as as a tech guy and a sports guy, not not as into sports as you are, though. We're going to get into some of that on the on the podcast today. But I have I I have noticed that as you know, direct to consumer, obviously merchandise we're talking about here with in your space, but also direct to consumer distribution of television and OTT, as we like to call it. When the leagues, the clubs, are going to know more about their users. When I say more, I mean specifically who they are. I'm just putting it out there that I'm really curious to see how the fanatics part of the world joins up with the broadcast part of the world to better you know, service the fan, monetize the fan. I mean, all of these basic buzzwords that I know we hear around the industry. How, how much time do you, do you spend up at night wondering, how can I monetize the broadcast audience better? Well, I, absolutely. I think when you're, you know, in this business, you know, the monetization aspect is critically important. And, you know, I think, you know, futuristically, you know, that connection to the consumer through any platform is going to be critically important. And, you know, one thing that Fanatics has become very adept at doing is geo-targeting consumers in terms of how they market. Now, this has also come back to bite them in the butt a little bit because, you know, sometimes they're a little too sophisticated in terms of their their marketing. I had a, a call with a, a international supplier this week, and he was telling me that, you know, Fanatics was running the Welsh and England rugby sites. And, you know, inadvertently they were sending, you know, England fans, you know, Welsh promotions to buy a Welsh rugby jersey. So, you know, it's, um, but- you Might start a war if they targeted correctly. In the, in the incorrect format, absolutely it would start a war. So, but look, technology is, is changing the landscape as we speak. And I think we've seen that during this pandemic of how important e-commerce is to the ecosystem of, of licensing. With no fans being in the stands, it's become critically important to market to your fan in a much different way, in a much targeted way. And, you know, offers are really critical. Um, you know, I think people are always looking for a way to save and, and you know, sports leagues and properties and the fanatics of the world are, are finding really finite ways to do it. And I think it's only going to get even more finite and they're going to tap into broadcast and they're going to tap into some of the other metrics that are, you know, going to, to be enhanced by this whole technological shift in sport. Yeah. I mean, we're all paying, you and I are paying so much attention to it on the various sides of the business that we are. 
what I want to do, because we can, you and I, I'm sure we can talk forever about tech and business and monetization specifically and digital, but let's, let's back up a bit. So the, the Jersey, the Jersey seems to be a really big deal, specifically when it's compared to, you know, virtually every other licensed asset that I'm aware of. So what makes the Jersey so special? Well, it really has become sort of the signpost for the fan. It's what defines the fan. It's what separates the fan um, from one team to the next. But interestingly, it, it wasn't always the case. I mean, if you go back to the 60s, um, you know, and let's use Toronto as an example, you know, those fans who sat in the prime seats at Maple Leaf Gardens were not wearing jerseys. They were wearing suits and ties. Um, so, you know, it really has been an evolution and it really wasn't until the seventies that, you know, somebody started to figure out that people might actually want to wear the same piece of clothing that the player was wearing. And, you know, it's, it, I'll have an interesting story about new era and how their headwear um, business basically evolved in the same way in the fifties with, you know, the originator of new era cap, but, you know, the, the Jersey, um, you know, now probably represents 60 to 70% of all team or league revenues. It's that strong. And so, and, you know, the interesting part about it is, you know, every marketplace seems to have a little bit of a different nuance as it relates to how many jerseys have worn. So if we look at it through the hockey lens, uh, if you go to Calgary, it's a sea of red every game. I mean, it's, you know, whether you're sitting in the, the highest price seat or the most, you know, the cheapest upper bowl seat, everybody is wearing a red Flames jersey. You know, juxtapose that against Toronto, where it's a little bit more of a sophisticated, sophisticated crowd, or they'd like to think anyways. But, you know, you'll see some Bay Street guys have a jersey tucked on under their suit jacket. So it really has become the symbol of fandom. And I think, you know, from a league revenue standpoint, again, that historical piece of how it came to be, I mean, you know, it really wasn't until 2001 when the NFL signed their deal with Reebok that leagues started to look at that category in the on-field authentic category specifically as being, you know, a massive opportunity to drive not only licensing revenue, but sponsorship revenue as well. Yeah, and you, know, you set up my very next point here. So we've seen historically initially in Europe uh, and then when the MLS kind of came to North America and really got its start in popularity um, you know, after Y2K there that the sponsor logo became very prominent you know across the chest of a jersey so what's your take on you know how they became so prominent on the jersey to the point where they're more dominant than the team name on the jersey and then in your capacity you know you're trying to procure maneuver sell, these jerseys in various ways, you know, how much, how much do you like just pull your hair out when that sponsor changes and, you know, you're sitting on inventory. It's, you know, that's a tough part of the equation, especially, you know, in a transient sports world and, um, you know, kind of a, a different sponsorship landscape, but, but look, I think the evolution of the, the on Jersey sponsor, um, you know, really emanated on the soccer side of things, but, you know, there comes a time in, in every league or team's, you know, financial um, timeline that, you know, you run up against a bit of a wall as it relates to revenue generation. And everyone is looking at how to be, you know, you know, revenue centric focused and drive more revenue as player salaries escalated. 
I think it's been incumbent upon the leagues to find new and innovative ways of, of getting new revenue into the mix. So, you know, I think that, you know, it's only a matter of time before every league, um, you know, you talked about soccer and soccer by far is the most prevalent as it relates to what I'll call the obtrusive sponsor logo, where you're right, it's bigger than being bigger than the club brand, but it, you know, it's also for fans in the Jersey category becomes an authenticator. And, you know, it's the one thing that people seem not to shy away from as kits change on an annual basis. And, you know, as we've gotten to learn a little bit more about the soccer business, um, you know, it's an annual rite of passage for the fan um, to buy a new kit, maybe two new kits or three if a team has a third. But, but certainly, um, you know, you have to factor in that there is a, a high turnover rate in the sponsor world. And, you know, it does impact you on the back end when it comes time for inventory. So, um, you know, what yeah, no, it's complicated. I mean, there's no, yeah. there's no question. And I think I want to dive into a topic a little bit now um, that even is further complicating it. And that's uh, and that's sports betting. So right now, you know, in Europe, uh, sports betting, sports books are really dominating the jerseys of many of the clubs, um, you know, as Sports betting is a little more mature over there than it is here in North America, but still we're seeing regulation in places like Spain. Uh, it's the beginning of it. We've also heard of it happening in the UK where there is some regulation around the advertising of, of sports books. And we're just on the leading edge of it here in North America. And we're not going to make this all about sports betting, but I wanted to get your take, you know, as someone who, you know, very, very much is uh, looked to as, as, one of the chief, you know, architects of these deals, you know, in in this industry, around the world, from what what I'm hearing now here today, and so ha the, the sports book part of it, tapping into you know parts of you know parts of our lives that you know similar to whether it was it was tobacco or alcohol, going you know decades past with regulations came in. How do you see the sports betting change in the jerseys play out and, and affect what you're doing, or what have you already seen? your role I, I think it's you know we talk about evolution i think this is the next progression in the evolution of sport sponsorship and um betting and you know really you know as it relates to sponsorships i think you're starting to see more of the bet 365s of the world and in all of them start to play a prominent role because they're all all looking at ways to actively engage with that consumer. And that's really what, what on, on kit or on Jersey sponsorship is all about is finding that, that pen ultimate, you know, you can talk about, you know, sideline signs or led boards or, you know, 32nd spots, but you know, that connector that a sponsor gets from that kit sponsorship is probably the, the highest piece in their, in their marketing portfolio. So, you know, I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg as it relates to, you know, the sport betting aspect, but, you know, one could also argue that, you know, sport betting has really made leagues and some of the prominent leagues, let's use the NFL as an example. I think the fan avidity levels of the NFL really have a lot to do with sport betting. And that goes back to even before, you know, the advancements that have been made in the sophistications in this business, but back to NFL pools and the precursor to fantasy. It's, you know, it's just another way to increase fan engagement across your platform. So, you know, I think we're going to see more and more leagues, you know, gravitate and, and sign formalized partnerships with a lot of these sports betting platforms. And it will become very mainstream where historically it was, you know, somewhat voodoo in the past to be associated with 
a gaming book or a sports betting platform. But you know, you have to find ways of 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 you know attracting that consumer outside of broadcast. Now you know that better than anybody. It's not just about what happens on the broadcast. It's about all the peripheral elements. And sport betting is a big, big, and will be a big, big part of sports for a long time. That's wild. I'm very looking forward to seeing how it, it plays out here here in Canada, which we are not we are not quite there yet. But uh, le- legalized and regulated is pretty much upon us at the time we're recording uh, this podcast. Maybe by the time we release it, it will it be is. legal. Yep. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about secondary patches for a second, secondary locations. And um, everyone knows by now the NBA is doing that. Um, but you have a lot of experience in secondary locations. You know, you had a prominent role at the, at the CFL for many years you know, yeah. in, in this same area. And, you know, is there, you know, do you give yourself, you know, a little pat on the back for is there a chip on your shoulder for being part of, you know, of an initiative that seemed very successful? for the CFL that now the NBA is adopting or has adopted? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we touched on this earlier. I think, you know, as every every league reaches its, its ceiling as it relates to revenue generation, it's only a matter of time before you have to start to look at some of these ancillary pieces as being part of your sales platform. So, you know, the CFL is an interesting case study. And, you know, I, I spent the first 10 years of my career there at a time when, you know, the league was in, pretty precarious financial health. And, you know, we had to do some things that, you know, maybe other leagues weren't ready to do. And some leagues to this day aren't ready to do, but, you know, we had to find a way to create equity and to build, um, you know, deeper relationships with our sponsors. And, um, you know, we not only sold one, but we sold two um, on the CFL jersey. And, you know, at the time there was some criticism, but, you know, also, you know, as it, as it relates to, you know, revenue, um, you know, we had to be way more creative because, you know, the sales, you know, the value proposition, the CFL at the time, isn't necessarily what it is today, so to speak. Um, a lot of teams were struggling, you know, you didn't have the behemoth Saskatchewan Rough Riders. So, you know, we really had to, to be as creative as one possibly could. And when we felt that was a way that we could, you know, package, um, you know, some, some interesting assets into the sponsorship world to help us build a much stronger sponsor platform. But, but look, there's, let's make no mistake. It will be something that, that if not in the next five years, every league will have a secondary patch. And the NBA was, you know, the first of the big four, but, you know, look no further than what MLB did with Nike last year. And, you know, MLB maybe, you know, professes itself to be one of the pure sports and, as it relates to to on brand um, advertising, but you know that Nike logo showed up pretty prominently last year and is there for the foreseeable future. So it's going to happen. It'll happen in the NHL. They're doing it with practice jerseys. Um, you know the NFL is a bit of a different animal just because of their their you know the way they drive revenue. I mean it's you know their broadcast deal in and itself is massive, but. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean, it will happen across the board in each of the major sport platforms. And you'll start to see it transcend into college and and pretty much every sport as leagues continue to push the envelope on raising revenue. Yeah, and you and I, I mean, both of our, our boys play in the, the various Toronto sports uh, hockey leagues here. And there's um, there's patches on those jerseys I've noticed pretty clearly. Yeah, Milk, Scotia. I mean, you know, it's uh, they all find a way some way, somehow. So... 
Um, but it, look, it boils down to exposure. And that jersey piece we talked about is probably the most exposed piece in, in any team or league's portfolio. So it's important to, to monetize that where you can. All right, so switching gears a bit, uh, kind of, I guess it's pre-CFL days for you. So for anyone of our listeners who have seen the Broadway show, which has also been in Toronto, uh, come from away, you'll, you'll know some heartwarming stories that emerged out of Gander, Newfoundland uh, during the tragedies of, of 9-11. So Jim, in prepping for today, I, I, I stumbled upon something that made me think, maybe I should ask you about your 9-11 experience while you were also in Newfoundland at the time. <laughs> Yeah, it was an experience. I mean, we basically, you know, everything that is portrayed and come from away, we we experienced and then some. So, you know, at the time, my wife was working for Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment and headed up their community relations uh, department. And my mom is actually a native Newfoundlander. So, um, you know, we found this an opportune time to sort of you know, go down, take a little bit of vacation, go visit some relatives. And then I was going to help out with some minor hockey clinics um, in and around St. John's when the Leafs got there for training camp. So, you know, we had gone out to, to visit my grandmother in, in a remote part of the island and we're driving back on that fateful morning and um, just happened upon uh, to turn on a, a simulcast of the CTV. And, and it was, I'll never forget, it was uh, Rod Black. And in this very kind of Orson Welles-ish voice indicated that another plane had just flown into the World Trade Center. And you know, we were, you know, what, what's he talking, is this a joke? What's going on? And so, you know, we were about 15 minutes out of St. John's, got back to our hotel and, you know, very quickly learned the magnitude of what had happened. And, you know, within the hour we were meeting with the um, Glenn Stanford who headed up the St. John's Maple Leafs and it very quickly turned into, you know, we were waiting for the Leafs to come the next day to informing us that we were all now volunteers of the Red Cross. And we were to report over to mile one because there were 26 or 27 planes that were descending upon St. John's and we had to check each of the passengers in. And so we spent the next 24 hours behind a desk in the rink checking each flight passenger in so that the Red Cross had a manifest of exactly where everybody was. And it was an unbelievable experience just to talk to some of the people who remember there was a Ugandan soccer team who was en route to New York and they were just, you know, through their interpreter asking where on earth that they were like, and had to, had to try to explain to people, well, you're actually in Canada, but you're on an Island. And, you know um, you know, what transpired over the next couple of days in terms of the hotel being transformed into you know, basically every ballroom space had a cot. Um, but what was amazing is how quickly the Red Cross sprung into action and had, you know, blankets and pillows and, and you know, toothbrushes and toothpaste and, and you know, the food at the convention center. And, and, and just, you know, they talk about Newfoundlanders all the time as being the most genuine people in the country. And, you know, for about four days, you had 26 flights of people just descend upon this town. And it just became, you know, an unbelievable experience to watch how people were engaging. Um, people were taking them into their homes. And so, you know, that that whole Broadway play come from away was really, you know, a true descriptor of, of what happened. And it all happened so quickly. And, 
Um, you know, it was just the, the, the humanitarian efforts that people were making and taking people into their houses and the bars opening up for, you know, free nights. Um, you know, it was just incredible. And, um, you know, we got to spend, you know, four days there until they started to lift the flight plans. And then, you know, the flights would gather in the arena by flight, they'd get bussed over and then they'd ultimately fly out. But, you know, we have a, a core group of people that get together every year on that day that uh, were part of that LEAF contingent to talk about, you know, kind of that experience and how it brought people together and, and really how it changed the world on that day. So, you know, it was one of the more enriching experiences, um, also one of the most unfortunate for obvious reasons, but one of the most enriching to be part of that effort and see firsthand, um, you know, how quickly things can mobilize and, and how those humanitarian efforts can go a long way of, of comforting people during a time that was horrific on so many different levels. I'm really glad that we got a chance to talk today and for you to share that story. Uh, I guess on the lighter side of it, outside of that amazing experience that you described, you know, if there was ever a person who could uh, reach out to the, the Toronto couple who wrote Come From Away uh, to create Come From Away on Ice, you know, it would probably be you anyway. So, I mean, maybe that's <laughs> a, a, another career path you can go on after this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, well speaking about on ice, and we haven't talked a lot about on ice yet, but I, but I wanted to get to it. Uh, so as far as kind of hockey families go out there, and, and I know Niche is, is a big name in some circles, especially when you, when you were younger and then your son will see, or your son see where their, their careers end up going. But there are really just a few families out there that have really made a name for themselves in the National Hockey League. And, and of course, you happen to marry into one of them, you know, the Fletchers. And, uh, and the Fletchers, you know, Cliff in particular, your father-in-law, you know, his, his time in the NHL goes, goes right back just before uh, the original six uh, expanded. And so I think you're a really good hockey player. I haven't been on the ice with you, um, but what's it like sitting at the table with Cliff? And then of course your brother-in-law Chuck, as he began to make a name for himself in the NHL. Yeah, it's look, I, as a, as a kid growing up, loving hockey and playing hockey, it's, it's, it's unbelievable to have the opportunity to sit down over drinks and dinner or at the cottage and, and just, you know, hear him talk about his experience in the game. And he wasn't a player, um, but certainly realized early that that wasn't going to be his pathway. But, um, you know, he got into coaching junior teams and ultimately, you know, started on the managerial side. And, you know, the stories he can tell from working, you know, early on in his career with the Montreal Canadiens and Toe Blake and that organization and how, you know, they had did it the right way and really shaped him as as a hockey executive. And then working with Scotty Bowman in St. Louis and then, you know, finally getting to run his own team in Atlanta. And he tells a funny story that, you know, there's one day he woke up in Atlanta and kind of looked in the mirror and said, OK, so all those crazy ideas that when I was the assistant general manager, I used to bring forward, you know, now these are all on me. And, you know, it became the new reality. But you know, super proud of him and and in the career that that he carved out. Um, you know, having an expansion franchise in Atlanta and then moving it to Calgary and ultimately, you know, capturing you know the Holy Grail and winning the Stanley Cup in '89. After, you know, he talks about you know those '80 years quite often about just how hard that you know getting out of that division was because of, of course Gretzky and the Oilers and and what they meant and then you know, ultimately coming to Toronto and having, you know, the ability to put 
um, you know, his kind of fingerprints on, on the Leafs after, you know, years of the Ballard eras and, and basically taking that brand down into the weeds and, you know, kind of step-by-step step and, you know, obviously, a, you know, he was nicknamed Trader Cliff, but one of the biggest deals I think of bringing Doug here um, was unbelievable. And it certainly changed the landscape in terms of how the, how the team was that I think, you know, set its current course and hopefully, you know, we'll see in time how it manifests itself, but, you know, setting a new standard of excellence in terms of how to run an organization. And, um, you know, the, the biggest, you know, I think accolade you get all the time when you talk about him is, you know, how good of a person he is. And I think I've, I haven't met anybody, um, you know, even before they know that Chris and I are married, that could that says anything bad about him. He was just such a consummate professional and um, considerate human being, and you know knows the game like the back of his hand. And you know, testament to him and to Brendan and Kyle and the entire Leaf organization that he's still actually employed by the team. So, you know, when you're 85, it can still be in the game and you know called upon, you know to you know, provide some sage counsel, whether it's a trade or a free agent, or just, you know, what would you do here? Um, you know, he's been able to stay, stay involved in the game. And, um, you know, it's been fortunate for the kids to grow up in that environment and kind of understand, you know, who he is and what he means to the organization. And, you know, now seeing Christie's brother, Chuck, you know, run the flyers, um, you know, which is, you know, to see his upbringing and hanging around with his dad. And now, you know, being able to run, you know, I always say there's only 32 jobs in, in the world as an NHL general manager, and he has one. So, um, yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. It's, you know, it's like a hot stove club every time we get together. It's, uh, you know, no shortage of talk and, you know, covers off. He's a huge baseball fan as well. So his, his allegiance to the Expos run deep with the Washington Nationals. So, but, um, you know, super great guy and, um, you know, Anytime you can, you know, sit down and talk to a Hall of Famer and pick his brain about things, you know, you're pretty fortunate. That sounds amazing. What, what an experience! And you know, we don't we don't need to get into all the nitty gritty idiosyncrasies of, of life that way. But the one thing we I think we just have to agree on: you know, if the if the Fletcher Niche crew was gonna, you know, field a beer league hockey team, like you would be the goal scorer, right? <laughs> I would be the muscle. I think I was oh, the never really okay. a really prolific goal scorer. I was the big defensive defenseman so everyone has a role to play all right it's good it's good yeah. to feel the team anyway exactly so with every episode of the backstage project podcast that that we record we always ask the the, the guests uh, a few standard questions so i don't know what's going to top your 9-11 story but uh but i'm going to ask you them about another moment perhaps um that you remember distinctly in in your career that, that you'd like to share yeah, there's many, um, you know, tons of CFL stories. I mean, you know, having um, navigated through American expansion and, you know, ending up in Shreveport, Louisiana, watching, you know, games and watching how they operated. Um, but I think, you know, there's two and they're related to golf. And, um, you know, one is is having the chance to, to get to know um, Arnold Palmer. Um, and I had the good fortune of, of running his licensed um, division um, for, for five years. And, and, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever met, I've met a lot of athletes, but never met, you know, um, a truer, more authentic individual than Mr. Palmer, um, who, 
you know, really was a pioneer in the licensed business um, in the 60s. Um, and Mark McCormick, you know, at IMG had a big role to play in this, but they took his business over to Asia at a time when, when really nobody did. It was kind of he and John Wayne who started, you know, brand marketing over in Asia. And to this day, his Asian business has grown into, you know, from a royalty generation standpoint, a 40 or $50 million annual business. But it was, you know, just a, a true pleasure to get to know him and, you know, sit at Bay Hill and have a cocktail with him and, you know, just talk about golf. And, you know, his his business acumen was off the charts. He he really got it and he treated every partner and every person the same way, which, you know, in this day and age is is a rarity. So that was one that the funny story was um, we had just done a deal. We were representing Royal and Ancient, the RNA. And um, we had just put the Open Championship into um, EA Sports. So we'd consummated that deal. So part of that is we had a, a presentation that was going to take place over at St. Andrews in the RNA uh, clubhouse. And so um, Tom Renato from EA and a couple of other um, guys from EA, we all flew over. And, um, you know, if you're familiar with St. Andrews, it's the iconic golf course. And and the RNA clubhouse sits smack dab on the on the first tee on the 18th green. And so we got kind of put into this waiting room and uh, we get ushered up to what we think is is this palatial boardroom. And so we're all kind of oogling about and this is unbelievable. And it's actually Peter Dawson, the head of the RNA's office. He goes, oh, yeah, this is my office. Yes. Here, come out. I'll show you this. Go out to the balcony and there's the first tee. He's got another balcony on the 18th green. And. You know, just to sit there with Peter Dawson, who you would see on the Open Championships delivering the gold medal for excellence in the golf, the golfer of the year, um, you know, just learn about video gaming and, and talking about how intricate the course looked on was pretty cool. It was one of those those moments where I go, OK, this is, um, you know, I've had a pretty good, pretty, pretty cool experience here. No, that is really that is really, really cool. As you know, as you've gone in your career, um, You've dealt with you know amazing people as we're hearing about here, and you've also you know, made the career of many people, I'm sure. And so, what advice do you have for people now who are who are wanting to get into this space as part of the business that you so uh, you know that you've been able to have such a great run on? Well, I always say no one chooses licensing; it kind of chooses you almost by default. That's how I got into it. So, um, you know, I, like you, I speak to to classes all the time, and I think. You know, the biggest thing is um, in, in order to get in the sport world in general, you really have to have a passion for the for the for the sport. And, um, you know, you have to be authentic, um, but you also have to be able to be articulate and present yourself. And I think that's a challenge for some of these kids that are coming out now is, you know, I tell anybody and everybody the best thing you can do is learn how to sell. And if you can learn how to sell, that means you can communicate, you can articulate, you can present. And if you can do that, then pretty much you can do anything in the world of sport. So, um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, this is one side of, of the business that not a lot of people understand. They, they see it and kind of understand it. But, you know, once you get down into the weeds on it, you quickly learn that, you know, it, it impacts every facet of the organization, as we talked about earlier. And it's fascinating when you start to get into, you know, the marketing side, the legal side, the you know, the revenue generation side. So 
it's it's a really multifaceted, interesting vocation. And um, you know, I strongly encourage you know um, anybody and everybody who doesn't understand just to take some time to learn a little bit about the business, how it works, and and how it impacts organizations. So. Yeah, one thing that I've noticed, and you and I had the chance to to work together. For anyone who doesn't know, uh, Jim and I had the chance to work together on the on the launch of the Canadian Premier League, and uh, I was supporting him with some of the digital aspects of launching that e-commerce piece. But I think the thing that when you're when you're in the business school system, like like I am, like, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but but I've been teaching in Toronto uh, an MBA class at the Schulich School of Business for a number of years. But when you look at the other course offerings that are there even though they have like marketing analytics and entrepreneurship and channel marketing, everything you would expect a business school to have, the skill sets that sports teams now need are very similar to what many retailers have been stocking up on over the years. Like they need people who know marketing, they need people who know branding, they need people who know data and how to use that data to reach an audience. And, and that's the exciting part as because the e-commerce side of sports is so much more involved in the direct to consumer space Compared to these other aspects, which we're getting into now, we already mentioned it off the top of the uh, of the of the show today, the OTT and direct to consumer broadcast. So super exciting time for people who have these sorts of skill sets to be looking at sports and helping sports properties and teams uh, chart the path of the future, which which is here, by the way, if anyone was wondering. It sure is. So looking back at your career, if you can quickly uh, toward the early part of it. Is there any way that you think today that you just you couldn't even comprehend back at the early in the early days of your career, whether it's the way you attack a problem or come to solution or deal with a partner? What are those kind of early, we can call them blunders or learnings that you had in your career that today you're like, ah, I'd never do that. This is how I would deal with it. <laughs> well, there are many. And being a CFL, it afforded you all kinds of opportunity for many, but you know, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it sounds kind of corny, but the level of preparedness that you need um, and understanding of the changing landscape, um, that's really important. So, you know, the one thing that the CFL did for me is it gave me a really interesting and hands-on cross-platform experience. So, you know, I ran, you know, I started on the media side of things and learning how to deal with media in a very tricky age was, was really interesting. Um, you know, often, you know, we were, it was like, you know, the circling vultures around the CFL at the time when, you know, was this the media conference that was going to announce that the league was finally folding and, you know, it's been able to stay on its feet and now, you know, be in a much better position. But, um, you know, I just think you have to be open to change. You have to be adaptive to, you know, as the world changes, and technology is a great component, it's it's attaching yourself to technology, understanding the power of it, and and how it's changing the world that we live in. And I think adaptability. Um, you know, I've, I've come across you know many many people over the years, especially early on, that were non-responsive to change, and ultimately it ended up being their their downfall. And you know, the you know there's a great line in in Moneyball that uh, Billy Bean. Brad Pitt, the actor says, adapt or die. And I think it's critically important that, you know, the world changes in warp speed by minute, by day, by month. Um, so you have to be prepared to do that. So I think, you know, early on, you know, one of my key takeaways was, you know, keep your eyes and ears open and be, be open to change and be receptive of change, but also, you know, 
be on your toes and have a role to play and how it impacts each of the business units that you're running. Thanks, Jim. That's that's great advice from someone who's who's lived it openly and uh, and has learned. And I'm sure you got some battle scars somewhere, uh, as do I from from those learnings. So really appreciate your time chatting today. I think we could probably chat for a few hours. So we'll have to think about a part two or a part three when we dive into a few stories. We haven't even touched on IMG, where you spent a, a crazy amount of time there as well. Uh, but we'll save that for another day. For now, thanks very much for joining us. Sounds great, Mark. Thanks for having me. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.